Hi, hello, welcome. So tonight we wanted to uh, start our conversation around um, this is a, a kind of tying a bow on several conversations that we've had, um, not only on here, but on our podcast as well. And wanted to start it off with uh, the layers that we communicate at, because there's there's been concern and questions around, you know, like if you're trying to wake someone up, you're trying to get them to see facts about something and understanding that we communicate on three levels simultaneously whenever we communicate with someone. So first there's the superficial level that we communicate at, which is, you know, exchange of information, right? Uh, whether we're talking about facts or whether we're talking about events, circumstances, things like that. So it's just an, an exchange of information. That's the superficial level of a conversation. Below that is the, is the emotional level of a conversation. And then below that is the level of identity where you actually tie in the subject with how you define yourself or the story about the, the story you have about who you are. So there's those three layers of communication that we're going to be addressing. And we're going to be tying that into um, not only how, uh, why it's difficult to communicate facts to people, you know, when you're trying to wake them up to something, <clears throat> but also how this same, the, this same phenomenon of layers of communication is also used to uh, indoctrinate people. You know, and it's used to uh, like the cult, you know, uh, cults are created. And I noticed an interesting phenomenon in our society right now where they're literally using these techniques to create cult, a cult, and I'll call it the cult of wokeness on a massive scale. You know, typically <laughs> when you're trying to get someone in your cult, it's like a one on one process, right? Like someone, finds the, the individual and you play on them at an emotional level. Um, the surface of the cult is always shiny and bright and looks really good and is playing on someone's emotion. <clears throat> and we see this in, uh, for instance, in, uh, let's see, what's an example? Uh, well, let's take wokeness, for example. So, they, they play on the emotion that, you know, people experience injustice in the world, right? And so they're playing on that sense of injustice in people and people who want to, who define themselves as good people or who have an emotional response to the injustice get taken in. Okay. So on the surface, it looks like a good thing. You know, Hey, we're concerned about justice. We're concerned about, uh, fair treatment and things like that. And so it seems like a really good thing. And then at the deeper levels, you know, you start to indoctrinate. So you start to uh, infuse the person. And again, you're still playing on those emotions with ideas that not only make them virtuous for being a member of the cult, but also make those outside non-virtuous, right? And again, you're seeing this play out in society where the entire media 
and the the entire industrial apparatus is playing this game where if you don't or if you're not down with our ideologies and you don't believe what we believe and you didn't vote the way that we voted then you're a racist a bigot a transphobe a you know and they've got this whole list so they they label other as bad okay so this is part of the indoctrination process and then you move into the uh, reprogramming where you start to literally get people to interpret the world through the lens of the cult. Okay. And, and this, again, this is being done on a mass scale that I, I, I don't think it's ever been done like this, that I, that I'm aware of. Um, and in that reprogramming stage, you also get people to divide and separate themselves from people they were close to. They, divide and separate themselves from family members. They divide and separate themselves from, you know, longtime friends and things like that, which again, this is typical of any cult. Like you guys wouldn't be surprised if I was talking about Scientology or something, but you would be surprised if I was talking about a political party or political leaning or a movement that encompasses half the population or something like that. And that's the scale they're working on. In fact, I don't know if you guys seen the, uh, CNN uh, uh, news anchor Don Lemon uh, actually going out on a news broadcast and talking about how he's had to cut people out of his life who do not think like him. So this is this is this is perpetuating this cult-like mentality at a massive scale, you know, worldwide in scope. And so it goes far beyond the, the uh, ind working on an individual level that we've seen before. <clears throat> now, a phenomenon that you will experience if, like, let's say you're trying to, you know, uh, convey some facts to someone, right? Um, and it's called the backfire phenomenon or the, or the uh, yeah, the backfire effect, Okay. And this has to do with uh, when someone has tied their identity to the facts that you're speaking of. So, for example, if we take an anti-vaxxer parent and a pro-vaxxer parent, right? Pro-vaccine and anti-vaccine. Now, both of them have tied their belief to the identity of being a good parent. The anti-vaxxers against vaccines because they don't want their child to be harmed. So they've tied their identity of quote unquote good parent to the concept of vaccines. And the pro-vaxxer has done the same thing. Now I'm using this because this is a pretty, uh, a pretty uh, nonpartisan issue. <laughs> and what I mean by that is you have pro-vax and anti-vax on both sides of the political spectrum. Cause so I wanted to start off with an example that doesn't necessarily divide down the lines of political, of the political spectrum. So, and, and the backfire effect is when you present, like, let's say I have a set of facts. This is, this is scientific evidence and it is contrary to the, let's say the anti-vaxxers belief. Okay. The backfire effect is that even though I present scientific evidence, which clearly delineates 
let's say no risk and benefit and all this other stuff, they will actually, rather than switch their view, they will actually double down on their belief. And same with if you go to the pro-vaxxer parent and present them with the same evidence that, look, there's great harm in these chemicals that are in the vaccines. Here's scientific studies showing the, the short-term effects, the long-term effects, and the risk-to-benefit analysis. Like you could have a stack of scientific data, but because they've tied their identity of good parent to being pro-vaccine, they will double down on their belief. Okay, so this is the backfire effect that many of you will experience when you're trying to wake someone up with information, with facts, is that because they've tied their identity into the subject that you're talking about, and remember, you're always communicating on all three levels simultaneously. You're, com you're communicating the information at the, at, the, at, at the top level, right? And then you, underneath that, you're communicating on an emotional level, and underneath that, you're communicating to a person's sense of self. Their, their subjective identity, okay? And they've tied their actual identity to the topic. And so, and that's why sometimes, well, sometimes, lots of times, you may experience a irrational response to what seem like neutral <laughs> facts, right? This is just, what this is just a set of facts. This is just evidence. And, and so there's a complete rejection and a doubling down on the information as opposed to an openness to this. <clears throat> and the reason why I feel like this is an important subject is because this isn't happening exclusively on one side of the political spectrum or another. This isn't happening exclusively on, you know, in one ideology and not in another. This is, this is happening across the board. We're seeing this at every level right now. And it's and it's working in the sense that it's dividing the people against themselves. So again, losing sight of who, who's really against you <laughs> and who's really uh, your quote-unquote enemy is, is, is hidden because the, the, this, this tendency to divide along these ideological lines based on a narrative, a story you have about yourself, is, is being played out in, in all aspects of our society right now on both sides of the political spectrum. And, uh, and you see it when you define the group that you're with. And so it's like, and the reason I brought cults into this is because it's like, it's a cult-like mentality where like, let's say on the Patriot side of things, like I've heard people use the phrase, well, there's only two groups. You know, there's, there's patriots and there's traitors, right? And so that's happening on the right. And they kind of see it that if you're not with us, well, then you're a traitor. You know, you're against us and you're against the constitution. You're against the country. And so this is, this is polariz This is polarization. This is separation. This is dividing people. This is putting people at odds. This is creating an enemy. Okay. And then on the left, you have the same thing where they're defining anyone who doesn't believe in their ideology as fascists, as white supremacists, as racists, as bigots, right? 
So they've they're this is happening in in all aspects, this cult-like mentality over these ideologies. And uh and so that's that's basically the gist of where I want to go with this. And I know Ginji, you actually have personal experience with uh being drawn into a cult. <laughs> yep, I'd say a few. <laughs> I'd say a few examples, but one as recent as um, less than a year ago. Do you want, do you want me to speak into it a little bit? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So give us an actual example of how this process played out, um, and I'll and I'll set it up with you know typically, you know when when being brought in to this cult like mentality. Like I said, you need to be aware of this because this is happening on a mass scale. They're using all forms of media. They're using social media. They're using every, all the tools at their disposal to do this mass indoctrination. And, and so there's basically, there's three levels. I talked about the first being the initiation where you're just, you're, you're basically played on on an emotional level. It kind of gets you in the door. Then there's the indoctrination, which is like, giving you a whole new set of ways of looking at things and, and ways of perceiving yourself as virtuous and others as not virtuous. And then there's a reprogramming where your a, a lens is established through which you now interpret the world through this lens. And this lens reshapes your beliefs. It reshapes the way you think. It reshapes the way you speak based on the ideology of the cult. So yeah, Ginger, give me your experiences with that. Well, um, first off, I'll say that I've, I've got my own pre-qualifications, if you will, for what a cult is. And to me, it can be cult-like or have cult mentality without being a full-blown cult if it doesn't have, I'll say, a spiritual aspect to it. So if at the end you're going to be enlightened or one of the messengers of God, or what have you, then to me, that's a full-blown cult. A human has stepped in and said, I am the God, everybody follow me. That's a cult. But there are lots of things that can be cult-like. For instance, without naming names, because I don't really want to call anybody out, um, there was a group that I was associated with um, a little more than a year ago. I want to say I got involved with them in maybe November and uh, I started going to their, their meetings and uh, well workouts. Cause it was a workout group specifically. And I'm, I'm not talking about P90X, even though that can kind of be culty too. Uh, this was something much more niche. And uh, I met them. They, they spoke like uh, a lot of people in the transformational field, very empowering, definitely playing to the emotional state that people are at, definitely being like the cure-all come from. Like, oh, whatever issue you have, just do some squats and it'll just work itself out type of idea. And what I found was every single one of their exercises or drills, which were basically patented by this this high level guy whoever was at the top of it uh 
they were incredibly effective. And there were ways to to hone in on specific muscle groups, which generally go uh, unaddressed. Like it's it's kind of one of the reasons why you can see a bodybuilder lose an arm wrestling match to somebody half their size because this guy's strengthened much more muscles in the arms than you know the bodybuilder because they're just going for physique. Uh, these drills were meant to uh how can i say it to help the body be injury resilient and to increase flexibility and strength and it wasn't about bulking up or i mean it could have been if people some people were going those routes but regardless big shiny object some of the best workouts and very niche workouts i've ever seen and the people that were involved were just awesome super community oriented and being of service and spoke all the right words. They played all the right emotions. And so I found myself in a place where I was advocating for them. Literally every person I was talking to, I was like, Oh, if you don't know about these workouts, this is where you need to be, man. This is the shit. And um, they started asking me if I was interested in joining the bigger group, the global group. Because this was just like a come work out with us on Sundays type of thing. And uh, it's free to go once a month, but then you have to pay a little bit to go once a week. And then I started working out with some of the other people once, uh, you know, several times a week. Were you going to say something, Cam? Yeah, Mr. Fair. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, Is this yoga by chance? (laughs) No, it's not. I, I had uh, to ask. You, you said it's a version of martial arts. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah, it's a version also, of martial arts. Go ahead. Also, what's the difference between a cult and a fraternity? <laughs> um, <laughs> my, my own distinction, which I laid out just a minute ago, was that the, a cult will actually have like a, a spiritual or religious uh, end point down the line. Like with Scientology, you become this enlightened person down the line where you're like spiritually evolved to the to some immense degree. Um, however, P90X, it's very cult-like. And you may even, even with like hot yoga or Bikram yoga, you may have some guru at the end of the tunnel that's teaching all of this stuff. But ultimately, it's just about whatever the subject matter is. And it'll it'll create a cult like following, but it's not quite a cult. So with with something like a fraternity, it is very culty, but they're not following any specific religion or spiritual practices. They're just all operating through the same lens or same information or worldview. Does that make sense? Good point. Yes, sure. Makes sense. And I don't know, Brandon, you have a different understanding of cults, but that's, for me, where I draw the line. I apologize uh, for interrupting. Oh, it's all right. Uh, go ahead and just finish out your story, and then I'll, I'll touch on it. Okay, cool. So, uh, where was I? I was at the point of advocating. So, at this point, I'm in the indoctrination. I have been fully indoctrinated. I have taken the pill. Um, 
full-on believer. I'm seeing all the benefits and none of the side effects. And <laughs> I haven't cut anybody out of my life yet. <laughs> and uh, I, I struggled for a long time trying to figure out if I was going to join the global group because there was no real explanation provided to me of what it was. Some people like it's a place to practice. It's a place to work on whatever you want to. It's a place to find community. It's a place to whatever. Everybody had a different experience or different explanation of what it was for them, which to me was a little bit concerning, but I've also been through, you know, transformational workshops where it's like, whatever you bring to the table is what you create in this space. <laughs> so I was in that, that had space going into it. And like, I can create anything in this, this awesome space. So I get into it. And once I joined the global group, I didn't last more than a month and I had to make a 12 month month commitment. And for me getting into that space and, 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 attempting to work that space i was met with resistance at every turn it was as if no matter what i did what i said or what direction i moved in i was getting criticized and beat down because of it so someone would say hey you're too much in your head then i would get out of my head and i'd start doing drills or you know meditating or something like that and people would say um, you know, you're disconnected. You need to you know, join the group or you need to communicate or you need to basically engage mentally again. And so then I was working on a balance of that. And they say, well, you're doing this. And they had a term for everything. What, what I'm describing right now is what they called a classic over under. And when I asked what this is, what that means, they, you know, I was met with a Michael Jackson uh, rhyme. He said, you're too high to get over, yeah, yeah. Too low to get under, yeah, yeah. You're stuck in the middle, yeah, yeah. And I was left they, to interpret exactly they what literally, that meant. Did they literally sing the song? <laughs> I mean, via text, but yeah. No. The dude, I don't remember. It would not surprise me if the leader actually sang it. I'm pretty sure he did. I mean, there's so many of these things that, that happen. Um but it, it's just like one of the one of the next things I was trying to learn is how to not burn myself out by pushing too hard or going too slow and work that sweet spot. So basically they had all of these terminologies, all of these um, explanations or really to me they're kind of like exclusive excuses and most of them were oxymoronic or they conflicted with something else like Gingy, you need to communicate but then when i communicated i would get called out for it. and there was no constructive hey have you tried doing something like this or hey what is it that you're really trying to create or is this what you meant to say here I would say something like, yeah, guys, I'm having a great day and I'm deciding whether I want to do this today or this today. And I'd be like, hey, Ginger, you don't listen. Like, well, what do you mean? Well, I don't listen in my life, which means you don't listen in your life. Okay. Well, what can I do about that? Well, you can listen. Okay. When did I not listen? 
I don't have any examples for you. Just listen. So it was very much so a a set of restrictions or boundaries imposed meant to to diminish or beat down this person to the point where they had nowhere else to go so that the per, the, the group or the 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 worldview of the group can reconstruct this individual break them down to build them back up and 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 complete conformity exactly like had you just started repeating the bullshit phrases that they said well then you would have got along swimmingly wouldn't you yeah and you know for me one of the biggest things i got is ginger you need to listen more or no you need to communicate more and so for me communication is speaking listening <laughs> it's body language it's you know emotional it's intuitive there's lots of levels to communicate at and really every time i would say i'm having a great day they'd be like ginger you're in your head too much or they give me some criticism and and i would say well what do you mean by that and we'd go down this whole other line where ultimately they weren't hearing what i was saying they weren't listening they weren't communicating or participating in communication. And, okay, I shit you not, after I quit, one of the, the guys that I was closest to, he basically came to me and said, Gingy, I'm committed to creating love and connection in my life, so uh, I would like it if we could never speak or see each other again. <laughs> and I would... Uh, in my that, mind, that seems like a, a, a contradiction. And that, that's what I mean. This is how the nature of the entire environment. And what these people, as I saw it clear as day, were indoctrinated into. Yes, they were experiencing major breakthroughs in their lives and they were improving their relationships and all these other things, but at the, at the cost of individual rationale. Like their individual ability to think for themselves was sacrificed for the rest of the benefits that came. And that's like, I swear that's something I'm incapable of. I cannot surrender my ability to think for myself. It, it may be part of my personality type or the muscles I've strengthened over my lifetime. But if I'm committed to creating love and connection in my life, then to cut somebody out of my life seems completely counterproductive, especially somebody who's committed to staying in my life. If this person's like, hey, I love you no matter what, you're like, oh, that's awesome. Leave me alone forever and don't talk to me. <laughs> so the nature of this entire environment, one of the other things he said to me was that he was absolutely astonished that my ego had been impervious to all of the the gifts that they had given me or all of the, the work that they had been doing with me, basically meaning I didn't change my self-esteem. I didn't change my view of who I am in the world, my identity. I didn't change my values, my morals, my principles, because these people kept giving me shit. Because I stayed true to myself, 
and I was there curious and trying to learn, it didn't work. And since I left, I have talked to one of them, one conversation since I left that group. And there's one other exception that I'm not going to get into right now, but everybody that, that I really met and connected with in that group, complete disconnection. And I'm not eager to chase them down and, and to force them to be connected with me. I, I, I respect anybody's choice to create connection or to, you know, create disconnection. Right. However, and that's, I think that speaks perfectly into the question that Cameron had on the distinctions between, let's just say, a cult and a, he said, fraternity or any other group. Right. Right. And it is that separating yourself from others. Like for instance, uh, you, you, you were telling me about that special on Scientology where you must separate yourself from people who are not, who do not believe in the doctrine. Right. We, you we must... separated from the mainstream bullshit basically. So we have to have that disconnect. I, I get what you're saying. I'm sorry. Keep going. Yeah, no, no problem. And so they're, they, but they force it. Whatever separation you just talked about, you chose, right? In a cult, it's like they've separated themselves that if you don't have this ideology, then you must separate yourself. And this is what you're seeing with the, the wokeness cult, right? The cult of wokeness is saying, if, they, if people do not believe what we believe, and I mean, they're going so far as to say they need to be sent to re-education camps. You need to get them out of your life. You need to separate these people. That's how a cult operates. It demands conformity and it demands separation from people who do not share the ideologies. Let okay? me add one it, more thing. It because... it yeah, it basically forces you to oust people who don't share the ideology, to... to, to hold them separate from you, to not speak with them, to not uh, uh, gather with people like that, to not be in the same space with people like that. Or create relationships. Um, right. So the other thing that I didn't say about this is, is that through this entire process, uh, I was creating a community in a city I haven't lived in very long and haven't created more than you know, a couple of friends, a handful of new friends. And so I had created a network of people through the meeting and going to these workouts every week, several times a week, to where I was finally starting to build a little community that I was engaged in and, and enjoying. And I should not, the leader, at, after I was, he went through his whole spiel and gave me so much personal attention in the group, I eventually was like, yeah, this is all great. I still want to quit. And he goes, okay, well, that's fine. You can do that. That's totally your choice, but you're not allowed to be engaged with any of my work. I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, you can't go to those group meetings that this other dude has set up in your town. And you can't, even, I was like, well, okay, that's fine. Like, I don't have to go work out with these people. I can, and I told him this, I was like, I can just, you know, go to the movies or something with them or go to dinner and still have my friends and my community and stuff. And he goes, Gingy, you don't get it. By engaging with any of them, 
you are engaging with my lineage, my work. He's like basically claiming these people as his, his, his people, his lineage, his work, his property. Saying they're free to do whatever the heck they want to do, but I will make it abundantly clear to them how I feel about it. He did not want me to be involved with any of the people I had connected with, period. And openly voiced that to everybody else. And some people full on believed him. Some people were like, well, we might be able to kind of negotiate this a little bit because it's not his group. It's whatever the other guy, the local guy's group. And maybe even doing one-on-one lessons or, or something like that. But obviously that's not the way that it worked out, but it was intentionally and directly communicated to me that by leaving the big group, the global group, and not engaging in, in this online network, that because I had taken this step all the way in, I was not allowed to step back and leave. Now, if had I never joined the big group and I just stayed on the periphery, I'd have stayed as this potential indoctrination <laughs> I don't know how that means. A potential uh, sale or enrollment. Ac- acolyte. and and i'd be free to continue doing what i was doing for the first six months or so but because i had stepped in and said "Ah, this isn't for me i'm leaving everybody else was at least at the very minimum under pressure to disconnect from me and every single one of them did it blows my mind there's a saying by Alan Quotes, I like, uh, we have a level of involvement and we have a level of detachment. And what he says is that you kind of have to have an equilibrium between the, between the two. So you have to have like the same level of involvement as the same level of detachment, if that makes any sense. Well, it sounds like maybe a healthy way to approach a group if there is an ideological basis to the group. Um, Because again, we're talking about those three levels of communication. So, you know, originally this conversation was about, you know, how do I wake up people in my life, right? Um, Well, when they've tied their identity to to an ideology, right, to, to a set of facts, to some information, then there is no, what you're calling detachment from it. They've not only become attached at a, let's say, an intellectual level to the ideas, they've actually tied their identity to those ideas, like I gave in the example of the anti-vaxxer and the vaxxer, right? They, they, at some level, they identify themselves, by the information. And again, you're seeing this in the, in the cult of wokeness in that people have tied their identity to, I'm a social justice warrior, right? I stand for social justice, even though all the principles they stand for are the opposite of justice, even though they stand for racism, but claim to be anti-racism. They're pushing fascist ideologies, but they claim to be anti-fascist. So but because they've tied their identity to the virtues 
the quote unquote virtues, the virtues they've been told that they have by adopting this ideology, they, it's tied into their identity. And that's why you get immediate rejection of anything that contradicts that because their identity, their identity is tied to it. They, it, it. It's become synonymous with who they are. So they can't see themselves outside of the lens of the, of the cult, which tells them that they are fighting for social justice, even though they're doing the opposite, you know? And so it's, what, what is an effective way of communicating with people such that you can address information or you can have conversations that may actually challenge this identity that they've wrapped up in their ideology. And I would say one of the best examples, I was thinking about this today, and I thought about like where we were at in the early 60s as far as racism in this country. And then I looked at where we were at in the early 90s with regards to racism. And I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And so I saw the pretty much the elimination of racism. And, it, and as I thought about it, I'm like, well, how did that happen? Because it wasn't by them you know, doing what they're doing now, trying to guilt everyone and basically bringing racism back. That's not how you get rid of racism. And I thought about, well, who was it? You know, who, like, who was it in the 80s and 90s that made racism evaporate? <laughs> and it became clear to me that some of the greatest, some of the greatest uh, quote unquote social justice warriors of the 80s were comedians. Eddie Murphy probably did more to battle racism than any social justice warrior today is doing. Because what he did was he was able to communicate at the level of fun, right? He was able to tease out in people. He was able to bring racism into a conversation and point out racist shit about people in a funny way that allowed people to let go of those racist tendencies because they were laughing about it, right? And That's so a brilliant I, idea. That's, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, because yeah, I and like it became clear to me because he he spoke he spoke to those aspects of what we'll call whiteness, right? Where he was able to make fun of, you know, how a white person may react to a black person. He wasn't shaming, he wasn't guilting, he wasn't making people wrong about it. He was making fun of it, and it evaporated. And, and so the shame I, I, along with it. What's that? And the shame along with it. I, I know yeah. a lot of people are like embarrassed to say something that might be construed as racist. And now it's like, if I say it, I'm the butt of a joke instead of the embarrassment. Right. Yeah. So, so that's like, to me, and, and I noticed that I do the same thing. Like you guys noticed, like with a lot of the things I post in our group, you know, typically I post it with humor because there may be people in this group 
who believe in these doctrines, right? Who, who really believe that, you know, that this, uh, that this country is absolutely evil and was founded on evil and everything about it is evil and it needs to be completely destroyed. But rather than me shaming them about their ideology, I make fun of it. I make fun of critical race theory. I make fun of uh, identity politics. And so it would enable someone who's maybe, maybe actually invested in these principles to actually be able to not take themselves so seriously, make fun of themselves, and they're more likely to allow those ideologies to disconnect from their identity. So, you know, I always like to bring around a, a, a way to, a solution to these issues, these social issues, these cultural issues, these philosophical issues that we're facing. Um, and I think that that may be an effective way that we can tease out people's ideologies. Let me but ask you we this. To, but we, hold on. But we also have to be able to not take ourselves seriously and not take our own ideology seriously because we need to be able to stand in a place of acceptance and compassion for other people so that they feel safe to let go of their ideology because they know that you're not judging them for holding or having that ideology. So if I can tease myself about my own ideologies and I cannot take myself serious about ideologies that I may espouse, well then others will be more likely to be able to not take themselves so seriously and be able to tease and make fun of their own ideologies as well. It's brilliant. It's a great access point. I, I'm so glad you're talking about this, Brandon, because it's been on my mind. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, not at all. Not at all. It's a, it's a discussion. Everyone's yeah. welcome to interrupt, just so y'all know. <laughs> So let me let me ask you, Brandon. How do you tease out? How do you have that lighthearted, joyful, everything is good and fun, you know, come from, while also not having the other person have an experience of being patronized or something? Well, I'll tell you what. I actually did this with someone over the gender pay gap. Okay, and the first, my first approach was from a place of just being pissed that people believed it because they didn't do the research. They didn't look at what this, this claim was based on. You know, the assumption and presumption of the gender pay gap is that if you take a man and a woman in the same job, the woman's getting paid less. And that's not at all how the gender pay gap has been calculated. The gender pay gap is taking all the money all men get paid, dividing it by the number of men, then taking all the money that all women make and dividing it by the number of women. That's how they got the gender pay gap. And that's the only variable considered is their sex. Now, <laughs> society is a complex model. It is a complex system. To boil it down to one variable is ridiculous. And when I approached it from that place of like, like being 
angry and pissed that people believed it and that this person that I was talking with was not only believing it, but espousing it and speaking it, I had no effect, right? Went nowhere with it. But over time, because I was able to take myself less seriously with it, I was able to actually have fun and make fun of it and watch the other person's stance and position on it evaporate. Because I was no longer taking it serious, you know, and I, now when I talk about the facts of it and all the variables not considered, like personality types, like the fact that uh, women have children <laughs> and don't necessarily stay in the workforce as long as men, that men will actually move to get higher paying jobs or women are more likely to stay where they're at because of, again, because of psychology, because of personality. These are just things. Men are more likely to work 80 hour weeks as opposed to 40 hour weeks. Women are more likely to have part-time jobs because they're balancing with the family. So all of, none of these factors were ever taken into account when boiling down the numbers. But when I came from a serious place and 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 an and angry place of, of this person's position on it, it had zero effect. But when I can laugh about it, make fun of it, and tease it out, you know, again, with no, not necessarily approaching it like I need to convince this person of something else, it just became when, if ever the topic came up, I was making a joke out of it as opposed to like needing to change the way people thought about it. What do you think, Brandon, about adding a cartoonist to this group? A cartoonist? Well, we actually have one, Jaime. I don't know if you guys have seen Jaime's cartoons. Um, he's uh, I mean, extraordinarily gifted. He's the one who did the, what really happened at the inauguration. Did you guys see that on YouTube? No, that'd be awesome. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's an awesome cartoon. He like took sound, uh, actual uh, sound clips of Biden and uh, just created a whole cartoon of the quote-unquote inauguration. It's hilarious. Put it um, in the chat. I'll find it and post it. Okay, okay. awesome. Because, I mean, I can see myself, you know, I have... I have a, a neighbor, for example, that is all about social justice, yet at his core, he's racist. And I he's like 80 years old, so I can't bring myself to fight with him too much, plus he loses his shit when I do. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, you know, I love the guy, I don't, I don't want to harm him. Um, but sending him a, a good cartoon just to lift the consciousness under, you know, and humor is a good I mean, that just seems like a, it's just a really smart, it's just such a smart way to approach it. It's almost the only common sense that we have. <laughs> After you said one, oh, yeah, that's a perfect approach. It's yeah, human. I mean, it, it became pretty clear to me because, I mean, yeah, I, I've used the example of Eddie Murphy, but there were a lot of comedians, you know, black comedians. Uh, Latin comedians, and they all kind of teased out racism, you know, and, and it evaporated from our society. It evaporated from our culture. Like by the time we got into the early 90s, at least where I lived, there was no racism. 
you know, like maybe there were racist people, but there was, they wouldn't say anything in public or anything. It was just like people were accepting, people were colorblind, like people were able to just see people for their character as opposed to their color. And now they're forcing the opposite down your throat. They're literally trying to stand on the shoulders of the social justice movements of the 60s, but they're perpetuating the opposite message. You know, whereas Dr. Martin Luther King said, you know, he had a dream that one day his children would be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. And now you have social justice where you're saying, no, color of the skin is all that matters. And that's what you need to focus on first. It's actually to ignore their heritage and what makes them them by being colorblind. It's a very sore subject on that side of the spectrum. I actually, I know that because I've gotten called out for it. And for those of you that don't really know me, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm mixed blooded. I got a little bit of everything but Asian in me. <laughs> and when people ask me like to identify on a piece of paper or something like that, I'm like, are you black? No. Are you white? No. Are you Hispanic? No. Are you this? No. I'm just like, I'm kind of everything. So I always check the other box and <laughs> other. Yeah. I was like other, I'm all of the above. Uh, I forget what I was saying now, but it's, it's, yeah, never mind. Go ahead. I, I got distracted by finding this guy's cartoon channel. So, uh, Brandon, okay. I was, um, it's interesting because I actually just walked away from a job because my boss was this way. So, she had a, a whole, I just, I guess I, I just labeled it somewhat of a narcissistic tendency. And if, if, if as Gingy had pointed out, um, if I didn't sacrifice my sense of self and overwrite it with what she, what the indoctrination message, which was we are the best in the organization. Only we know how to really do deals. Right? Whereas I went out and I started partnering with all the lines of business. And, and so I'd never done this kind of business before. And I was able to, re I was their top salesperson nationally. And it's never happened before. Um, simply through my partnerships. And I, I thought of you guys every day because I thought, man, there's just nothing that beats partnership. It's just unbelievable, right? It, it compounds everything. Um, and she was pissed. And she just kept trying to beat me down and get me, and I'm like, no, look, this, this, this is not, not how I see the world. I literally, we went to lunch I said, look, it, it is apparent to me that we have different worldviews. I respect how you choose to show up, that you get to do that. This is just how I show up. And so I got the threat, you know, be careful, because, you know, essentially we'll mix you. But she couldn't, because I was the top seller in the whole company. So um, she wanted to, she just couldn't. But anyway, at the end of the day, I had to walk away from like $3 million in deals. That's how sticky it was, and she guaranteed. But anyway, I thought, how could I have approached her? Because in lunch, I'm like, look, do you really want to run it like a mafia? But had I circulated some kind of humor, you know, because the, 
it just could have lightened things up and enlightened things a little bit. You know, it could have sort of loosened the strings on, on the other teammates as well who were almost suffering because if she didn't want them to win that day, they didn't get to win that day. Now, I was winning yeah. in spite of all of them, right? So. Yeah, I would say it, the, the level of effectiveness that you're going to have with humor depends on their level of buy-in. Like, for example, I mean, the full-blown social justice warrior, like I majored in critical race theory in college and now I'm in human resources, uh, they take themselves way too serious and this ideology has a tendency to create psych psychopathy. You know, like, like they get to the point where, uh, and I mean that quite literally, like literally it, it, it creates uh, psychopaths because you get to a level of cognitive dissonance where so much anxiety gets built up that you have to completely, uh, like split your personality up in order to accommodate or to justify what from an outsider is clearly not aligned with your values. You know, so because there's this conflict of what you're pushing with what your values are, it creates a high level of anxiety to the point where, I mean, you've seen it like with those who have what we call Trump, what, what, what's TDS, Trump, Trump derangement, <laughs> Trump, Trump derangement syndrome, right? So they're literally people who are losing their fucking minds because of that, of that disconnect, because of that cognitive dissonance that's created by a conflict of what you're pushing, what you're saying, what you're doing with your underlying values. Which is exactly you know, what you were you talking know, about last week. You know what you this reminds me of um, weaponization of words, right? So at the end of the day, this woke crowd, uh, what they end up doing is throwing anti in front of anything. And if you're not part of that movement, then you're the opposite. So, for instance, you're, you know, for the racists, if you're a racist, then you're, you're bad, right? But then if you're anti-racist, then if you're not anti-racist, then you're bad because they threw anti in front of racist. Same thing with anything else. And, and it kind of reminded me of the, uh, the whole thing of using their words against them. Okay, okay, so if you're anti-racist, then you're racist. So who's against racism? I mean, everyone's against racism as far as I'm concerned, but they throw anti in there. And now if you're not part of that movement, then you're racist. So right. uh, don't buy into their ideology, you're yeah, racist. It's the same thing with the whole, remember, the whole voter fraud. They throw in there every vote should count. And let's throw their words back. It's like, well, no, not every vote should count. Every legal vote should count. And so it's kind of like you have to, you have to use words against them in order to battle them because they, they try to weaponize words every day and making different definitions. And now it's so easy to create a, a new definition of words because all you have to do is go to their, their woke liberal leftist uh, um, websites like dictionary.com and within minutes they got a new definition up, you know, like, like um, what's one? Oh, sexual orientation. That was one. You know, now it's derogatory. <laughs> I didn't even, I never knew that. <laughs> I got, I got blasted for calling someone a thug. And I'm like, to me, a thug is someone who 
you know, commits crimes, a bully, someone who's violent. No, now it's a, a young black man. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Where are that? And, now, and then you go and look at the definitions. Yeah. Holy crap. Uh, they just threw it in there. Now, you're, if you call someone a thug, you're calling them a young black man a thug. It's like, wow. It's, That's crazy. It's crazy. They don't have to print books anymore. They just go online and it's, it's you know, a few clicks and they got a new definition of Ch- change. They change their Wikipedia entries and their dictionary.com entries. And they've got, like you said, weaponization of the language. Just yeah. so you know, just happy. Um, I'm, uh, I'm uh, the uh, director of the anti-killing grandma movement. And so if you, if you don't agree with my ideologies, then you want to kill grandmas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go did tell, you release, did you release COVID virus? Go tell Cuomo that one. <laughs> uh, one thing I want to point out in this conversation is that to me, all of the weaponization of words and what you were talking into, Rachel, those are all for me, like booby traps. Those are all ways to easily engage in the conflict that is not only in society, but in individual minds. And I make it a point for myself to not, to not be interested or to just not engage, period, in the conflict. If they have something they need to prove and something they need to say, the person I'm engaging with, I'm happy to hear it. I'm happy to let them prove it. Go for it. Doesn't mean I have to believe it. And if I were to jump into that in the space of conflict and be like, well, no, here's why you're wrong. Instead of just seeing where they're coming from. It's so easy to dive into that conflict and be part of it instead of remaining neutral. To me, that's the the balance. Which is Brandon is why I was asking you how you how you tease without without patronizing somebody or at least having right. them feel without like mocking. Being yeah, because I have gotten that too. Not only have I gotten the the color blindness ramifications or call out saying, you know, that's actually counterproductive and you're actually supporting racism and bigotry by not not. Uh, not I not identifying, but not um, acknowledging somebody else's race, which to me is like assuming they're part of a specific race based off the colors and by the way they look, <laughs> which I already had problems with that. Anyway, um, but I've I've been called out for for uh, not for basically because I'm laughing. Because they're trying to convince me of something, and I say, hey, yeah, I mean, I see where you're coming from. They feel my laughter as a form of attack. And I've been called out saying, hey, don't you patronize me. Don't you, you know, this is serious stuff. I'm not being, making a joke right now. Don't laugh this off. They feel attacked by that lightheartedness as if they want me to take this as serious as they do. And I, like you just talked into, some of these the some people out there doesn't matter what ideology they're holding on to or really committed to some of them may take it so seriously that you can't just laugh right through it and brush it off and make light of it because they will never make light of the situation 
until that's, they that's why I was thinking, like, if that cartoonist was there, you know, if you're like this gentleman in my neighborhood, if I if I shoot him a cartoon, it's one, it's topically relevant. Two, it's funny. And three, it might be like it might invite an open mind, and I'm not there as if my ego needs to be present as the invitation. You know, like he gets to experience whether he has an open mind or not, and a laugh or not. I simply just sent it because um, it made me laugh. But it's you know, it's a, a well, read the room it, type it, of situation. Yeah, it it is. And so remember, we said you know you you it depends on their level of buy-in. But here's. Uh, you know, if, if, if someone takes themselves real serious, a way to make fun without making fun of their idea or them directly is set up a straw man and make fun of that. Like I just did with the anti-killing grandma movement. That's, that's, a, straw man. that's, that's a straw man for the anti-fascist, right? Or the anti-racist. It's a straw man. So I'm not making fun of the anti-fascist. I'm not making fun of the anti-racist. I set up a straw man called the anti-killing grandma movement and I knock it down and I make fun of it. But the, but the relationship there is obvious. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, and, and because I painted it ridiculously, you know, like, well, yeah, who's not anti-killing grandma? You know, uh, well, who's who's not anti-racist, <laughs> who's not anti-fascist. Like, it's just as ridiculous as what you guys are saying, but I painted it more ridiculous, and then I knocked it over, and I made fun of what I created, the straw man that's standing in place of their ideology. You know, George, that reminds me, George Carlin was very good at this stuff. And, I, you know, uh, back in the day, when you listen to his, uh, his stand-up, man, that guy spoke so much truth. You know, it, it came to the point where, I, you know, back in the day is like, you know, I wasn't so, uh, I guess uh, my eyes weren't as open as, as it is now. So, you know, now looking back, I'm like, damn, someone probably killed the guy because he was so out there with his, uh, his stand-up comedy about all this, and you know, uh, government takeover and, you know, the elites and everything that you're not part of the clique, you're not part of the club, so... You know, just a sheep. That is pretty right. cra- kind of crazy, though, the, the stuff when you hear them. So if you guys haven't heard George Carlin, you got to pick up something awesome. on YouTube. He's great. It's hilarious. But one of the things I really like about what he does is he doesn't, like Brandon was saying, make a straw man and attack it. He's not taking what they're saying or any of these ideologies. He's boiling it down to the bottom line of what's going on. Like, for me to make light of say something like anti-racism i'm like cool let's all get in the fight over whether or not racism is good or bad and that's something that the majority of people like you already talked about agree on racism bad and if you go right to that bottom line and make light of it it's like do we really need to have an anti-racist movement then somebody well, comes through and they start uh, well, talking you, about you, the logistics. Well, yeah, but you have to go back to Giuseppe's point of redefining what racism is because <laughs> that's what they've done. So, so now racism doesn't mean what you thought it meant, Gingy. <laughs> racism, yeah. by the definition of the anti-racist, is any system where you have inequity, which is unequal outcome. Again, boiling down 
a complex system. Uh, human society is definitely a complex <laughs> system to one variable race. Like, well, you don't have equal numbers of this race and that race in, you know, per capita in this sphere or domain of life. It must be racist. And then you say, oh, there's not, e there's not equal representation anywhere. So the whole thing is racist. Yeah. And so the whole thing must be destroyed. And so they've redefined racism, you know, and what we used to define as racism, they're defining as the solution. <laughs> racist. you know and they're doing the same thing and i just realized that they did the same thing with minority you know when you when you think when you think back when okay when someone's in the minority they're in the you know there's lower less numbers of that particular you know um ideology or that particular um group of people group of people but now they redefine minority as person of color you know hispanic latino um, black, Asian, they're minority. Which the they white, actually make up the majority of the numbers. Which, the but the white, but the white man's not a minority anymore. You know, the white man's the bad guy, and it's kind of they redefine minority to 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 make make it a more of a racial thing versus a, a group, a number, and, and that's right. It's kind of weaponization of words, redefining it. It's crazy. It's it's straight up nineteen eighty four. Right. And then they ignore inequities that don't go along with their narrative. Like, for instance, South Asians, people from like India, East Asians are overly representative in success and culture in our country, in our society. They are overly representative, meaning they're more successful in business. They're more successful in schooling per capita than any other group. But they ignore that because they're not the big bad white devil. So they, they leave that out of the equation completely. That's why you don't hear them talk too much about East Asians and South Asians because they're overrepresented in what we call indicators of success within culture. You know, they excel in school, they excel in business, uh, they hold uh, that their per capita income is higher. You know, so it, it, it doesn't fit with their narrative that the big bad white man's holding everyone down. Well, except Indians and Japanese, evidently. <laughs> yeah, it, let's not attribute it to maybe a little more hard work than other people, but it, it's a racial thing. Right, exactly. And that's what they do. They, <laughs> rather than boiling it down to a multitude of variables, which are at play here, including the culture of people from India and the culture of people from Japan, they boil it down to just race. And in fact, they're taking indicators for success and b saying that they are actually indicators of white supremacy. Like, did you guys hear last week Bill Gates basically saying math is a form of white supremacy? Oh, my God. Yeah. Math. Holy math. Yep. Now, 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 keep in mind, advanced mathematics comes out of, like, Egypt and Persia. Hello? POCs, right? Like... This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, that now math is white supremacy. Oh, and being what? on time is white supremacy, and working hard is white supremacy. <laughs> Which is like, what kind of fucking culture are you trying to create? <laughs> uh, what are POCs? People of color. Of color. Gotcha. Point of contact, no, people of color. <laughs> I'm so, an anti-racist, I wouldn't know. 
Now Cam's work. So when we're saying they, you know, this is just a thing for me, obviously. Um, it, we're not talking about the same they. We're, we're just talking about the one. I, I mean, or, or is there a they that this group has agreed is the they? Yeah, well, in reality, like, the people pushing this shit are rarely in the know of what agenda they're really pushing. Like, you have an entire group of people in this country, like the Ibram Kendis, that are, quote-unquote, critical race theorists. And they are pushing these agendas, and they're pushing them hard, right? But who's, who came up with these theories? Who brought these theories into academia? Who's the one who put all the fucking communists into, into positions in academia in the first place? Who's, who's steering the media narrative towards all this? So there is a, quote unquote, they that's steering the whole ship and the entire agenda towards the destruction of our culture. I blame but the, Operation Paperclip. <laughs> that, could be part of it. that could be part of it, but I, I'd say it goes far beyond that because oh, yeah. it's, it's an international thing. This isn't just happening in our country. Like, it's funny. Um, there was a, a lady in the British Parliament, um, and she just started railing on critical race theory because she was basically saying, look, this is an imaginary problem. Like, they had, like, a whole defund the police. Like, I don't know if you guys know England, but the cops don't even have guns, okay? <laughs> yeah, they don't. <laughs> and in reality, there it are is. no police shootings or police brutality of any kind. So, they, but they were pushing the same shit that they were pushing here. They were pushing in England, and this lady in Parliament's all, y'all have lost your minds. This is insanity. This doesn't even happen here, and yet you're pushing these critical race theories. Yeah, and they're, she just, just, they're just echo right just, just, just They're just parroting what they see. And actually, a lot of these people that, that are pushing or, or, or following all this narrative, when you ask them, well, why? They can't answer it. They're just repeating it, and they don't know why they're doing it, but yet they're still doing it. It's crazy. I think this is what, why I get, because we talk about left and right and they and this and that. And really what you're talking about, Brandon, is a higher level they, uh, 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 they that everything below this they is filled with parents. Not everything, but that there's, it's just as I, I wasn't watching who was speaking, but... Um, that the parroting, that, that sounds right to me, that that manifests in all different um, social constructs, right? Even within families, parroting is a, is a problem. It's not, it's not self-think. Well, yeah, it's not thinking at all. Like, mm -hmm. again, you got to remember, like, our entire educational system has turned from teaching people how to think into teaching them what to think. And so totally. that's, so that's, that's I, all I it actually, is, is. You get information, and because the a academia at all levels, from kindergarten through to the highest levels of university, are all teaching these principles. And so 
people go to school and what do they do? They come out and regurgitate information because they, they can't think for themselves. They haven't, they haven't learned to think. So all they totally. do is regurgitate information. So totally in, right. in the, and that's why, again, like why I think the comedians of the eighties were so successful in, in getting rid of racism was because in making fun of it, it made people look at it because they were willing to, because it was funny and it wasn't an attack. Mm-hmm. Whereas right now, everything's an attack. So nobody's going to be willing to look at anything. And like I said, this is coming from both sides. This is an exclusive to the left. The right is doing the same thing. Right. And their attacks mm-hmm. against the left. So the, you have the left attacking the right. You have the right attacking the left. And they're doing, and nobody's going to be willing to look at anything if they're being attacked. Which is the point. Exactly. Divide keep and them, conquer. Yeah. Keep them fighting. Keep them working. <laughs> so, so it's interesting you say that. I actually had a, um, I have a, a number of individuals I know from like Ivy League institutions. And I remember asking one of, one that I believe to be one of the smartest or most intelligent, what the difference was. And he actually said that. He said, you know, it, we are taught how to think. So our mathematics courses are words. We have to write out why this mathematical formula proves this way. Whereas I went to public university, you were told what you were told what to think, right? So you did you never deduced the the how or the why. You just this is the answer. And until you gave them the answer. So that that's an interesting um, interesting point, and that is so true. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up is that I actually have some contacts from NASA, and one of the privileges I had was to serve at a nonprofit where we did um, acceleration and innovation for aerospace and, and other industries. And one of these individuals had a group that he belonged to that was the pioneering and settlement of uh, of Mars, essentially, or any planet. And they were teaching young children how to essentially settle, how to build societies, how to create clean water, and those types of things. So it's interesting as I hear you talk about people wanting to destroy. Um, and then for some reason this pops up in my mind is, well, you know, to what end? While others are trying to build um, and pioneer and settle um, uh, forgive me if I took us left, but that's that sort of showed up for me. And so, can you speak a little bit more about like the the they that wants to destroy? Um, I feel a little like they're asking, but I still want to ask. Well, I, I mean, if I could boil it down, it's behind it all is the same group of people that have been controlling shit for hundreds of years, and they control through the banking systems. Okay. So they've been pushing international communism for a hundred years. Okay. So now we were the big thorn in the, the side of the elite in that we had a constitutional Republic, um, a form of government that hadn't never been seen and that was uniquely resilient to their pressures. So, They've been developing, literally, 
<laughs> for a hundred years how to take us down. And they've been slowly undermining all of our, you know, bureaucracies of government, the agencies of government are infiltrating. They've been infiltrating academia with their, with their thought leaders, people who believe in their system, who believe in the communist utopia. Okay. They want, and it really, it comes down to, they don't really want a utopia. They want tyranny, but the constitutional Republic would not ever allow for their tyranny. So it must be completely destroyed. And at the same time, all those countries that came up after us and who tried to model their governments like ours, well, they're in the crosshairs too. So this is why there's this global push for this international communism. That's why you see lockdowns in all these countries, right? They're getting everyone used to these ideas. They're pushing these agendas in universities in all countries. They've been infiltrating the systems of free republics for over a hundred years. Okay. So the, they is the people who want to control. Like they don't have enough control now. <laughs> they, they already control our entire monetary systems, which gives Good. them control of our bureaucrats. It gives them control of our politicians. It gives them control of our media, but that's not enough. Well, could they, the word they, be conveyed as the 13 bloodlines of the Illuminati? I think all of that is distraction. I think the, the they, you don't know any of their names. Right, I understand that. They, they prop, yeah, they prop these people up like, oh, Clintons and oh, the Bushes and oh, the royal family. Dude, they, they aren't running shit. They're fucking puppets. In my opinion. Same, same with Bill Gates, too, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, they aren't running shit. Like, the people who run shit, they know that to keep their names out. Because if shit goes down, guess who's going to get strung up? Gates, the Clintons, <laughs> the royal family. You know what I mean? They know who's going down. They know how this shit works. They know if shit don't go their way, that we're going to string up all the people that they propped up as puppets. Just like Hitler wasn't the mastermind of the Nazi movement. And just like Mao wasn't the mastermind behind the communist China movement. There are always people in the background. And I have a feeling we don't know any of their names. They prop up people. They prop up the Soros. They prop up the Rothschilds. They prop up all these other people because they know if shit gets real, those are the people going down. That was the most truth I have heard in a really long time. Or it feels like the most truth that I've heard. That was brilliant. Thank you, Brendan. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could give you names. <laughs> the reality is they, they don't exist in our world. They exist outside of our world. Meaning... And I don't mean like off planet or anything like that. I mean, maybe they do, but that's, <laughs> that's not the point I'm trying to make. What I'm trying to say is they exist outside of our systems of commerce. They exist outside of our systems of, of media. They exist outside of these systems. They orchestrate these systems and they have their puppets in place. 
and they just pull strings because they know that if shit gets real, that they can just disappear because you never knew who they were in the first place. And Ginger. What up, Greg? What's up, brother? A little off topic. But I was curious, you ever uh you ever write in I am the future and your other on the race card? <laughs> you check other and check and then you write in I am the future. <laughs> uh, uh, no, just put I am I am the master of the universe like <laughs> yeah, that's that's how I identify. <laughs> when you were speaking into it, I was totally thinking about the time machine when he goes into the future and everybody's the same race. So. <laughs> the cult leader. Now, I, I have thought growing up, I was like, you know, just logic being like my mom's mostly white, my dad's mostly black. And, and look, you know, thinking, oh, if, if I came out brown and imagine if everybody had mixed babies eventually in the future everybody would be brown now genetics doesn't exactly work that way but <laughs> it is something that i've thought of i am the future <laughs> well i'm right there with you gingy and i think that's what gave me kind of a unique perspective on all this was like just having mixed heritage you know where I could like, I can identify as nothing or I could just pick from the wide range of things that other people pick from. Um, so I always, well, as a kid, I kind of went through like, oh, well, I'm part this. So I, you know, I'm this and, oh, well, I'm also part this. So now I'm this. And so it, it kind of like, it just created a confusion within me because it seemed like all the people around me, it was pretty clear <laughs> what they double, were. I like to call those double blinds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I used to get, I was the one who would get the question, literally people on numerous, more times than I can count, have asked me, what are you? As if I'm not human, right? <laughs> so, what are you, right? Or, or, <laughs> when, I first met, or when I first started talking to you on Independent, that's the way I was for sure. <laughs> yeah because it's just like you i don't really fit necessarily and people are like you know you kind of look like you might be hispanic but your hair is pretty jacked up i don't know what like my, my hair is like uh <laughs> my hair is like uh, uh an australian uh native right an aborigine i got like aborigine <laughs> saw your name and stuff I thought, I thought you were like a maybe maybe a mixed guy maybe an afro maybe long hair complete fucking opposite <laughs> <laughs> but i've seen your youtube <laughs> yeah it's it, so again so i i think that gave me a unique perspective on like what does that any of that really mean you know, so I was able to kind of like at a young age drop into like, is this even real? Like, like I was questioning as a kid, like what, how is skin color any more significant than eye color or hair color? Like we don't divide ourselves by hair color. 
We don't divide ourselves by eye color. What, what, why? Why would skin color be any more significant than anything, anything else that distinguishes one human being from another? What about ear size? Oh, we got the small ears over there. We got the big ears over there. <laughs> That's a great straw man, the ear guy. <laughs> the big ear guy. <laughs> Brandon, you know, it's funny because my brothers are both, they have the same hair as you. <laughs> and, <laughs> they? and they, right, they have like this, like this changing skin. Like in the summer, it's. They're really, really dark, and then, and then they're really, really not. And we had the same, you know, we, we would drop into the same mindset. It, it, we didn't know we were cool. We were down with it. It was, it, was, it, it was nothing at some point, like, just because none of that was meaningful at some point. So that is so interesting um, that you say that. This whole call is fascinating because it relates to last week's call. And now I want to, I'm so curious about, all right, so we have the they, and we have, we have the cult, we have the unsuspecting parroting, which are leaders of the subcults. <laughs> right, yeah. Now, what is our and, responsibility? <laughs> yeah, and, and like I said, we're at a unique time in history that they're now doing this mass indoctrination into the cult of wokeness. And, uh, and it's, I mean, it's on one level, it's fascinating that that's even possible that you can indoctrinate millions of people, you know, into a cult through the use of media, social media, and just things like that. I mean, it's it, well, and academia, because again, the indoctrination started in school. You know, um, my, my kid brought his homework a few months ago was totally freaking like communist indoctrination. Like it was a, it was a story about a flea circus and how the fleas needed to be getting paid equal to the owner of the flea circus because, you know, they're just as important again, not taking into consideration that. Miss so-and-so, the you know, person who ran the flea circus, took all the risk, put up all the capital. You know, it's, it was pure communist propaganda in the form of a story about a flea circus. Fascinating. Fascinating. So going back to that, Brandon, how do we unmarry belief from identity? And, you know, here information is information and you know address it or call it out and and or speak to it in some way uh let's talk a little bit into how we can be in relationship with this phenomenon well i i'd say on the individual level so for the people actually listening to this this is work we can do for ourselves because this is something again don't project out like this is what other people need to do because i got it right no 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 um we need to be in check with ourselves in that that identity is a false identity, right? We have this subjective identity. It's a story we tell ourselves about ourselves and there's no real truth to it. And so we have this tendency to tie things to that identity, right? Like for instance, in the first example I used, the, I'm a good parent, 
is the story of anti-vaxxers and pro-vaxxers, right? They've, uh, they've tied their identity of good parent to either being pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. And if you confront them with facts that contradicts their belief, they actually double down on their belief. They're not open to any information. So for us to be open to information, we need to find those distinctions of where we've tied facts or information to the story we have about who we are, that narrative, that, that identity that we, that we hold, that, that image that we believe ourselves to be, right? That we convey out to others, this is what I am, this is who I am. And if it's somehow and in some way tied to information, then a challenge to the information becomes a challenge to who we are. So we become closed off to possibilities. We become closed off to information because we've tied the information to our self-identity. So as, as us, those of us here on this call, that's something we can do is start to, for one, break down the story we have about ourselves. Don't take ourselves so serious because in not taking ourselves so serious, we can laugh about the story we tell ourselves about ourselves and we can laugh about our attachment to ideologies that we've, that we've embedded as part of our identity. So that, that's a, a practice that we can have uh, through our uh, examination of our own narratives about who we are, that, that identity, that subjective identity that we, that we hold ourselves in, that image that we've created, that we, that we curate, right, of ourselves. You know, hey, Brandon, you bring up a, a good point where you say that um, they double down on their beliefs if, you know, if we bring them facts and, and whatnot. You know, the way I, I see it is, you know, people that are more conservative see the the left side, which is the liberal side, more, um, you know, good people with bad ideas, whereas them, uh, as they, you know, in, in terms of the, uh, um, the very liberal radicals that we see nowadays that have pretty much infiltrated every every sector you know in the, in in our you know in our population that they see the conservatives just bad people with ideas right. and so, you know and, and it's kind of like it's hard because like I'm just going to even say it with you know a few people that I know it's 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 hard to talk to them to the point where it's like I can lead a horse to water, but I can't force him to, to drink. And it's like, dude, you're, you're, you're dehydrating yourself. Can you drink? And no matter how much you want to point it, point, you know, whatever facts you want to point, they have, they're attached to their beliefs. And it's kind of like, I'm, I'm tired of talking to them. It's like, it's, it's like, well, why am I, I'm wasting energy and they're just an energy suck. And it's, and I don't know how to, I honestly don't know how to talk to them without like, just, you know, hitting them over the head with a frying pan and said, wake up, you know, but they think they're awake. They're not. I, I use the term sleepwalking because they're yeah. sleeping. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, there's, there is also like where we hold other, right? So there is this tendency 
like to to create these dichotomies, to create these this this false division, um, and that's going to be an obstacle, regardless of what side of the spectrum you consider yourself to be on. So if you consider yourself on the right, or you consider yourself on the left, but you and you hold yourself in that box, right? That's a part of that identity. It's a part of that image. It's a part of the story we have about who we are. Well, then we're automatically going to create those same kind of boxes for other, right? People outside of our values, outside of our beliefs, whatever. So we, we have a tendency, if we're going to box ourselves up and limit ourselves, we're, we're going to do that with others, right? We're going to box them up. We're going to limit them. And so that, that's already going to create an obstacle right off the bat. I would say that the best approach is to, when you're talking to people, just be talking to people. You know what I mean? Like, rather than I'm, you know, I'm on the right and I'm talking to someone on the left. Um, and like I said, a, a great approach is teasing it, you know, and if they take themselves real serious, don't tease their ideas directly. Don't tease them directly. Don't mock them, but set up a straw man of their beliefs and mock that, you know, because then you can actually mock it together. Like you yeah. start to create these straw men's of this ridiculousness, you know, like I said, like my anti-killing grandma, right? I'm, I'm part of the anti-killing grandma movement. If you don't believe what I believe, well, then you want to kill grandma. Like that's <laughs> absolutely ridiculous. But that is exactly what people who call themselves anti-racist and who call themselves anti-fascists are doing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, exactly. so it's like, so you can, you, I think that that was why we saw so much progress in, in getting rid of racism through the 80s and 90s was because of comedians, because they were able to make fun of whiteness. They were able to make fun of these racist tendencies that people in general had, and we were able to laugh at it. And because we were able to laugh at it, we were able to look at it and we were able to let it go. So I'm convinced <laughs> Eddie Murphy did more for civil rights than any social justice warrior today has done because he was able to make fun of that. And we were able to laugh along with it, look at it and let it go. So there is value, especially when someone, remember we communicate at three levels. We communicate at the, at the uh, we'll call the, the uh, superficial level which is when you're just conveying information, right? So whether it's facts or you're speaking about events or circumstances, whatever, you're just conveying information. Well, beneath that, you're communicating on an emotional level. And beneath that, you're actually communicating your identity. And you got to realize that when people have tied their identity to a set of information or facts, that they're going to, th that backfire mechanism, that backfire phenomenon is or effect is going to be present. Because you're not just challenging an idea, you're challenging their identity. So that's why they double down on their belief because they like, you know, again, the example I used with the pro-vaxxer and the anti-vaxxer parent, both have tied their identity of good parent to being pro-vax or anti-vax. So if you attack either of their positions, you're attacking their identity. And so they're going to double down on their belief. You know, if you, you could bring them all the facts in the world, you could bring them notebooks full, here's all the science and they will double down on their belief because you're not really attacking information. 
you're not, you're, or I shouldn't say attacking. You're not challenging information. You're challenging their identity. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, it's all about identity politics. So. No, yeah, but, and, and, but your point, Brandon, is that they, they take, right, so there's a couple of ways to do it. Eddie Murphy, of course, doesn't, you know, he's not present with these individuals, so they're inherently not attacked in their identity. It's sort of agnostic information. Um, and, and so you could create that same sort of scenario person to person by creating a straw man. Um, but, but the point is, in, is well made is that there has to be a way to show up in an agnostic way. So if you feel yourself attached to a position, then that's check number one. Perhaps you're not in the right frame of mind. But if you're curious about inviting other ideas or at least playing with ideas, then perhaps you're ready to then create a straw man and do person-to-person -person kind of agnostic um, idea play. If you will. Right. That's why it starts with being able to, like, not take yourself serious. Like, seriously. Seriously. Don't take <laughs> yourself serious. Like, it, like, if you can make fun of your own ideologies and you can tease them and tease yourself and make fun of yourself, well, then, you're, you, <laughs> then you have an opening because you're not taking your own ideas and, your, and yourself too serious so that it becomes more natural and not like mocking when you tease other people's ideas because you're already in the practice of teasing your own ideas and making fun of your own concepts and, and, and beliefs. So it, it creates like an even playing field, so to speak. Whereas I'm willing to look at and make fun of and not be attached to my ideas creates an invitation for others to do the same, right? So if you take yourself super serious <laughs> and you are completely attached and, and have attached information to your identity, well, then there is no opening for you. You are not open to information, right? So if you're not open to information, then are you truly having a discussion or are you trying to indoctrinate? It works both ways. That's, you can be indoctrinated and you can that's try a to great distinction. That's a really good distinction, right? Because you're, you think you're inviting them into a new possibility, but if you're not willing in that moment to also be invited into a new possibility, then what you're doing is indoctrinating. That's a good point. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways we can all, you know, leave this call with is whether or not we are trying to convince somebody of something and indoctrinate them into our belief system or if we're actually neutral. if we're actually accepting and compassionate for these other people. Because that really cuts both ways. That's an immense point. All righty. Anyone else got anything to contribute? Questions? Comments? I have a couple of things, if you don't mind. Not at all. Um, so 
I was having a great discussion with my stepmother this weekend, and we're both conservatives. And so she's arguing with me her point, which I obviously in that instance agreed with her. I'm like, you don't need to argue with me. I agree with you. And and I noticed she was putting people into a category, lots of different categories. And since our conversation last week, um, I noticed I am more aware of the categories and identities that I am instilling on other people. And, you know, the first step is is recognition, right? The next step is now dissolving those categories. So I brought it up to her and I said, well, can, can we just like get rid of the fact that it's not all illegal immigrants who don't want to speak citizenship? You're not, you're saying you don't understand why they don't want to if they want to live here and reap the benefits. But let's not just, let's not put them all in one category. I think everybody might have a different reason. So have you talked to somebody who hasn't? Well, no, but I asked other people who are here seeking citizenship. You're not really asking the right um, people there, Mom. So so I, we had a great conversation about identifying people and putting them into um, categories and, and making them part of something that they may not be. And I asked her, I said, you know, when when I heard on TV the news anchors accusing Trump supporters of being white supremacists. Like, how how does that make you feel? Because it really fucking pissed me off. And she goes, yeah. She goes, I'm not. And I said, neither am I. But that's what they're, some people are telling other people, and these other people are choosing to believe it. They're putting us in categories, and we're doing the same thing. So exactly. let's just drop that, and let's just say that person did XYZ hurt my feelers and move on, but let's not put them in any type of category. And if we can all start there individually. And I found that conversation was extremely easy because we were both coming from the same place already. And so she was already more open to it because she was wanting to hear my opinion about the same thing that she was excited about speaking about. And so I felt like I had a breakthrough with a very stubborn woman. And (laughs) so I'm very excited, but, you know, um, I didn't realize when I came into last week's conversation that I was in the exact place I was at to need that conversation. Um, I'm always walking around so pissed off in hatred just flowing through me because no one is waking up and seeing what I see. So the second part to my statement is thinking back of what woke me up was seeing something happen that made me go, huh? And I went and sought out research on my own. And as I've been talking with more people, I asked them, what what woke you up? And I have yet to find one person that says, I was in a conversation with somebody and they said something so profound that I was like, maybe I need to change my way of thinking. 
Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen out there and that we shouldn't fight for truth and try and help people wake up. What I'm trying to say is we shouldn't get discouraged if we aren't able to make breakthroughs because what you might be doing is planting seeds that they then later go look up. And I asked my stepmom, very combative woman, very passionate about her beliefs. I said, have you ever had a conversation with someone where you were expressing yourself and talking your point of view and somebody said to you, hmm, that's a good point. You know what? I see it your way now. Totally sorry. And she goes, no. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so why do you keep expecting people to say, hmm, you know what? You're right. And it might be we, it might be your approach. <laughs> it definitely could be your approach. Absolutely. Because I know I've been in conversations where I'm like, hmm, that's a good point. But it took a lot for me to swallow my pride to say that. So some people might be hearing what you're saying. They just not be vocalizing it because they might not want to yet. And so I just want to tell people to hang in there. Don't get discouraged if you're, if you're not seeing the red pills drop. Yeah. And, and again, there is different levels of buy-in. Like some people are just going along to get along and they aren't really buying into any of it. <laughs> so, so they're going to be much easier to convince with a little bit of information. But some people have bought in and they've already, you know, taken action and they've already spoken you know, the, the, the ideological, um, uh, the proper ideological phrases, right? And they're, you know, they've admitted their white fragility and their white privilege and, and they have uh, uh, denounced our entire culture as institutionally in, uh, racist. And so they've, they've already got a level of buy-in, you know, and so they're going to be they're going to be the ones that you have to be more tactful with because they've, they've tied their identity to the information, to the ideology itself. So, but people who are just kind of like, like get, go along to get along and, you know, they don't talk about any of this. They're, they're going to be more open because their identity has not been tied to the ideology or any information regarding those ideologies. So that you can have a pretty, you know, just a regular conversation, exchanging information. And like you said, the seeds are planted and then an awareness happens. You know, there, there's a, an awakening moment, uh, uh, what the uh, Zen would call it, a moment of Satori, where they just, it, it dawns on them. They get it. It hits them. Or they go and they do some research of their own and they wake up, they wake themselves up. So there is all different levels of buy-in. And yes, really, it's about that. We've talked about this in, the, in some of the previous calls. It's about that personal relationship that you establish with, with each individual. You know, being in a place of uh, uh, authentic, trusting, um, compassionate, understanding. Like when you create a space like that to be with people in conversation, well, then there's, there's going to be more openness as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, mom's approach to, you know, of being combative isn't necessarily the way to go. <laughs> you're going you're to get extraordinarily low results with, uh, with uh, beating people over the head with your ideology, you know, and, and like 
like Jinji mentioned just a minute ago, it's just indoctrination. You know, it's, it is indoctrination that we're attempting to do on others as opposed to, you know, are, is your intention really to wake people up, to have them open their eyes, to have them think for themselves, or is it to get them to believe in what you believe? Because that's what the tendency is, because that's what's comfortable. That's growing your own cult, right? So that's, that's where we began this whole conversation was around that cult ideology, that, that those mechanisms of a cult where the, when I'm in the group and all the group thinks the same things and they, and you always create in the in group and the out group. Right. And again, this is happening on both sides of the political spectrum. I told you earlier, I hear it on the right. They're saying, well, there's only two types of people, patriots and traitors. Right. So what do they get? They have the in group patriots, people who think like them, people who believe what they believe, and then traitors, <laughs> people who don't think like them and people who don't believe what they believe. So you have the, this in-group, out-group tendency with cults, and that's not thinking. Thinking for yourself means not necessarily being able to be fit to the mold of an ideological group. If you have the freedom to think for yourself and to challenge ideologies within your group, well, then you can start to dismantle your own cult, which is like what you talked about with your experience with your mom was, you know, being able to meet her where she was at and then get her to see that, look, they're doing this to us. And we're doing that to them. <laughs> you know, like, it, how can we expect any kind of a different result if we do the same thing to them, right? If we just pigeonhole everyone who doesn't think like us and say all immigrants are such and so, all Democrats are this way and that way, right? So you, just like they're saying, all Trump supporters are racist and bigots, right? So this is happening on both sides. And this is why we need to be aware of the cults that we are, that we are creating and becoming parts of by just adapting to an ideology and then tying that ideology to our identity, which will make it harder and harder for us to let go of the ideology because we've tied it into our identity. Brandon, I think, um, actually, Lynette, that was brilliant, and Brandon, really great close. I think um, what you taught in your class and your coaches did so well was contribution isn't, isn't attached to ego. That real, you know, legacy and, and contribution to a greater good is not attached to ego. And so... Well, no, well, it's not common for somebody to say because of a conversation with you. It's because it may not manifest like that. They might feel it coming from within, but you planted that seed, and that was your contribution. So if we remove our ego from wanting to know it was related to you and your conversation or me and my conversation, then um, we just trust that 
you've just contributed a seed and you hope that, you know, it continues to grow and, and perhaps you'll see that grow and it may not, and if it is not associated with you and your contribution, then in some way that's even more divine because it came from within them. So I, yeah. I learned that. That's actually, that's actually a great point because that was something I struggled with for years because I would come up with these great, this great information, this, you know, these great sources of information, these, what I felt were enlightening topics or whatever. And then I would share them with people and then they would come back years later as if it was a brand new idea and that they had thought of it. <laughs> it frustrated me because I'm like, I told you that years ago. <laughs> so there, there's definitely uh, having a, a humility <laughs> and a humbleness and no expectation of how and why people shift in their ideologies or their come froms or the way that they think or what they think is will definitely benefit both you and them because it's actually it's going to be stronger it's going to be better if it comes from within them as opposed to well, well so and so told me this and just for the record, to last week's conversation, you know, making sure you create the space to where they feel comfortable to come back to you. If you are in the moment of the conversation where you're creating that space, then perhaps you will be able to recognize and see uh, when they want more information because they will feel comfortable coming to you and saying, okay, like, like we talked about last week, okay, what do you know about this? You know, and, and I think it will help soften the conversation if you come from a place of acceptance, you know, of making sure that you see both sides and not indoctrinating these people. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, it, and it also, that same approach when, you know, we were talking about teasing, you know, teasing out ideologies, you, you can't do that if you're not creating that kind of a safe space with them. You know, that, that trust, that acceptance, that understanding, that compassion, because then your teasing becomes mocking. And you, again, you're just going to drive them deeper into the ideology. They're just going to double down. Um, so that's, that's, it, that's even important in that, uh, in the teasing, the making fun or setting up of a straw man of an idea and knocking it down. It, it's, it's really important to create that experience with the person you're having the conversation with, even if you're teasing it out. So it doesn't come across as mocking. And to be clear on where you're coming from with everything. That's like what your goal is, what your intent for saying, what you're saying is. And honestly, that's probably the biggest contribution we could all give to the planet right now is to be clear on why we're doing and saying what we're doing and saying. Meaning, if I'm having a conversation with somebody, am I trying to enroll them or indoctrinate them? Am I trying to be right and convince them that I am smarter or that I have the correct understanding? Or is, is, is my intent to you know, support them in thinking critically, thinking for themselves? Is my intent to support them in their journey and understand why they're talking and speaking into the things that they're speaking into? 
Now, the, the intent behind what we're doing is critical in these moments. Because a lot of people, like Giuseppe was saying, they're just regurgitating what they've heard. And that's not, that's not specific to any side of any conflict. That's across the board right now. There is a ton of people, like we've already addressed, that are simply just regurgitating what they've said or regurgitating what they've heard because they've learned what to learn and not how to learn. And if you're committed to supporting somebody through you know, learning how to learn, you can say, well, could you show me that information? I'd be really interested in hearing it. Or maybe that's right. I'd need to read more. Do you have any resources? Inquiring in those ways can prompt people to, well, let me give an example. Um, back in my super strict anti-vax days, <laughs> I was totally committed to trying to change people's minds and letting them know how stupid they've been. And the things that broke me out of that were not the people that wanted to argue and fight with me because I had every rebuttal on the planet. The thing that broke me out of that in that fixed position were the people that wanted to learn more from me. So I said, hey, can you give me an information about why vaccines are bad? Then I had to go digging to find the facts that supported what I was up to and what I was saying. And what I learned through that process has me more so in a state of, I don't know enough about all vaccines. I know enough about the specific ones that I've looked into that I've been uh, basically coincidentally I've, I've needed to look into because of events going on in my life. And because of that, I, I, I've learned where this information is. I've learned a lot about a lot of vaccinations. I've learned a lot about you know, how they could be beneficial and how they could be detrimental. I've learned a lot about the entire field. But before that, I was just regurgitating shit I heard on a documentary or my dad or friends, or at work, or whatever. So being really clear where I'm coming from and why I'm saying it, as well as being able to uh, connect with people on those levels, to engage with them, to learn more, or um, be clear where I'm coming from and be able to meet them where they are, basically is what I'm saying. That is such an excellent point. And it's, it only would come up that way if you were genuinely in a space of not being attached to your own ideology. Exactly. You know, because then it's not, it, it, this shouldn't be a tactic so much as a genuine come from of like, well, you know what? I really don't know that much about that. Can you tell me more about that? Because I'm genuinely in a space of wanting to know more about the subject. It's the, the result is they're going to dive deeper into learning more about the subject, possibly, you know, again, no expectation of outcome there. Are. Yeah. It's, it's like one of the reasons why I committed three months of my life to learning about the flat earth theory, because I genuinely wanted to know why people believe the earth was flat. And I learned just about every excuse and, and you know, facts and sources that they, they could cite. And I went through all of it. I, I spent a lot of time on that. And <laughs> those people firmly believe what they believe because 
that's that's what they've studied. That's what they've really gone down the rabbit hole to learn about. But bottom line, they're all saying the same things. And they absolutely have confused what facts mean and what facts are facts. Right. Come at me, bro. <laughs> you know, Gingy, it's, it, it's really interesting you bring up um, how that uh, someone being sincerely interested, uh, you know, like shifted your own stance or, or like how, how hardcore you were in your stance. Um, because specific to vaccines, I, I, I think I might have mentioned this, but that kind of reversed roles where there was a couple of people who were saying, oh, yeah, you should totally get the vaccine. The person happened to be pregnant. Who would, and and instead of countering them that, yeah, that the, the question asked, well, what would be the benefit of it? And when they realized that they were both kind of stumped and they didn't really readily have all these reasons why, you know, they should even like chase after the COVID vaccine because of like, you know, they're not high risk. They're young, you know, young women, they have a baby, you know, and that actually changed their mind. And then suddenly they said, oh, maybe you shouldn't run out and get it. So it's like totally counterintuitive, <laughs> but it worked. And he said, okay, you know, I'm just going to back off. I think I got my, you know, my wish. So that's, that's really profound. Uh, ultimately, where that inquiry left me was I only know about the yellow fever vaccine and about the mRNA vaccine that's coming out about with, with and related to COVID. All the other vaccines, the measles, polio, the flu, I don't know shit about because I haven't done my diligence. So rather than me assuming that I know everything about all vaccines, and saying they're all terrible, including all the ones to come in the future that I so arrogantly believe I know about. I can say with confidence, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's a vaccine out there that I would take. I don't know because I haven't had to take any of the ones that, uh, you know, that that have crossed my that crossed my path. And in the future, there may be vaccines that come out that are incredibly beneficial that save millions of lives and injure nobody. I don't know. And just by being in that space of I don't know, I'm less attached to what my, my belief was earlier. And my space of inquiry invites people into being in that same space with me. Like, would you just take the recommendation of the doctor because the doctor said so? Would you like to know why the doctor said so? Would you like to know why some vaccines may be better than other vaccines? Why is it that so many people don't take the flu vaccine when it's been around for so many years? There are so many things out there that actually I've looked into the flu vaccine too. <laughs> that is one that I'm, I was very curious about uh, last year in particular because all the talk about a COVID vaccine, I wanted to know what other coronavirus vaccines in the past have worked since it's the novel coronavirus. There must be a old coronavirus vaccine that has seen some success to base their their project light speed or warp speed or whatever they called it off of. Anyway, I'm, I'm saying all this to say that the, the space that I was left in was in being honest with myself about what I know and what I don't know. 
And obviously the enormous vast sea of what I don't know, I don't know. For all I know, I don't know that I don't know that there's a vaccine that's coming in 2580 that is completely a cure-all that has zero side effects. Sweet. I don't know that I don't know that. That's definitely a possibility coming in the next 400 years. I don't know. So and you don't less attached to my beliefs. And Gingy, you don't know, you don't know if you're going to be around. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Maybe, maybe I'll take that one. <laughs> I really feel, though, like with some of the stuff, like with the moment we're at right now, where stuff is becoming more and more ridiculous, um, in my own humble opinion, that just asking people to repeat some of the stuff and, and just being, just like you're saying, just honest and humble and being like, I'm kind of confused that there's all these other genders. Can you just explain like why this is that way? Or just asking like the real questions that really, truly, I mean, like, I, I know like I, I laugh about it and I present the stuff like it's just, I, I just can't handle it. So I tend to be that way, but I, I really am sincerely interested in some of these questions about why this is coming up and, and, and we're talking about all this, but just saying when, when this is coming up with someone who is like, Oh, of course we all can choose and, or, or with, you know, with uh, the masks or with anything and just really asking like, well, you know, if, if two masks, then, you know, how, if you're wearing two, then why do I still need one? Like, don't you already have two masks now? Or just some of these basic questions and that it, it really is hard for people to come up with all these facts about proving, you know, the efficacy of whatever, catching <laughs> Corona. I don't know. Anyway, I'm just, I'm, I'm very intrigued by that as a thing rather than sharing more facts. Like I, I brought this up last week. I just think the facts are, are losing their, pizzazz because everybody's got them and none of them really hardly mean anything anymore because it's like i don't know i mean somebody like i saw i forget somewhere on here somebody was saying how like they it was oh it was like a new york times headline i think it was new york times but it said you know basically like critical thinking isn't all it's cracked up to be and basically you shouldn't yeah did you yeah like you shouldn't just be going out and, and research doing your own research because it's just a waste of time because you're going to end up getting a bunch of false information. And, you know, the example that they brought up was something from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And they said, rather than even looking at what he said, they typed in Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And it said, well, he's an anti-vax conspiracy theorist. And so he said, fine. So I don't even need to look into what he said because clearly he's you know a whack job and anyway it's just so people are done with facts the the day of the facts is is <laughs> is is coming to a, a, a junction so i don't That's know maybe just it was a forbes article yeah that's a great point michael where, i mean where do we go if facts don't matter anymore? And that's a question I've been in 
all of 2020 because it doesn't matter what facts are saying what information because every single person has collected facts that support their beliefs. Like as soon as the, the CDC released a report, their comorbidity report last year, you had half the population jumping up in arms. See, only 6% of all the COVID cases are legit COVID. All the other ones are not due to COVID. And you had the other side of people jumping up and saying, yeah, you see, this is all the different diseases that COVID can make, you know, can kill you from. This all, and they're just, you had both sides taking the same release of information and arguing their points with it. So the question remains where do we go when facts don't matter anymore? When they're just ammunition to defend a belief system? And I, I wonder, Gigi and, and uh, Brendan and, and everybody actually. I was thinking through this as you were talking, and it seems to me that to invite critical thinking, the reason uh, this goes back to, again to Brandon's statement last week and how, you know, not being in your own integrity, in your own truth, in your own alignment leaves one anxious. And so everybody's just around being anxious. And for me, when I see people taking hard, fast positions, it's a it's a comfort. They're they're soothing themselves or attempting to soothe themselves. It doesn't quite work, but and that's why they hold on so tightly because they feel a disparity to to soothe. And so and and again, as I'm talking, I feel like my position's a little strong on this. So but that said, I feel like in our conversation, if we're going to invite individuals into into critical thinking, and, and we are also inviting ourselves into critical thinking, one thing, thankfully, to Brandon and his team, Greg, Jinji, Patricia, I mean, I have a really healthy sense of self, so I don't mind being uncomfortable for an extended period of time because I know who I am. But that's not the case for my neighbors, most of the individuals that are around me on a, a regular basis. And so I feel a responsibility to give them some kind of comfort position to take. Like, uh, we can invite them into critical thinking, but, but shouldn't I also invite Oh, and have you have you considered this? I don't know. It brings me, you know, sort of. I don't know. It's it's a more complicated conversation. But I wonder if instead of disrupting them some more, which is going to give them the experience of you bring disruption to them, that you actually bring them to a place of, of something peaceful. Anyway, be comforting. There you go. Just that easy. So I would say that in, in a space where facts are literally on the moon, what is left? Brandon broke down three states earlier. There's the superficial communication, there's the emotional, and there's the identity. And those are three different spaces to communicate from. Does I have that right, Brandon? Yep. So if you're communicating with somebody about um, anything really it's the facts are on that superficial level I'm conveying to you information that should change the way you feel or identify that's not exactly how it works you can you can dig down beyond that and connect with somebody on an identity level 
you can connect to somebody on an emotional level and have much more effect. I would assume. I know if somebody plays to me, it depends on where they're coming from. Like if I see a commercial pulling on my heartstrings, my immediate reaction is F you. <laughs> if my heartstrings are being pulled by, you know, this, this cult-like group I was in last year, that ended in a big F you. But when people are applying to my emotions and they're coming from a space of, of love, like I give it up freely. You know, I connect with them in that space. And to me, two things here, actually. Number one, where are you coming from in the conversation? Are you coming from a space of love? Are you coming from a space of, uh, of, of cult enrollment? Or, or what? Being clear on why you're doing what you're doing. And then two... Are you appealing to their emotions? Are you appealing to who they are as, as people or, or any other type of being? Are you just trying to you know, speak a bunch of facts at them compassionately? And what level are you communi communicating to them on and why are you communicating to these people? That will drastically shift. Just being present to it. Not even saying there's anything to change, but that will drastically shift. Just being present to it the conversations that you're having. Yeah. And you can relate <clears throat> like for instance, relating, you know, information that at one point you may have had tied to your identity that you've let go of since and the struggle that you went through in really creating a new narrative of who you were <laughs> because you, because you had had this ideology or whatever tied to who you were, your identity and then finally gave up the ideology or, or, the, or the information and let go of it and therefore had to build up your identity. Because we've all, it's, it's, it's about that humility, right? That uh, ability to be humble and, uh, or even epistemological humility where what I know or, or what I think I know, being humble around mistakes I've made in what I thought I knew and how I had my identity tied to those mistaken, that mistaken knowledge, that mistaken information, that mistaken, those mistaken facts, whatever it may be. Um, because then you can, you're creating the opportunity for them to acknowledge information that they've tied to their identity being wrong and how there is, you know, the possibility of letting it go and not losing who you are, being able to rewrite the narrative, the story of who I am in, in regardless of the information or the knowledge that I had tied to that, to my identity at one time. You know, I remember this one time I bought that stupid shit off the infomercial, like, you know, it's, it's, it's actually an important place to, to acknowledge because in our society, we have a tendency to judge people with poor judgment <laughs> or to not trust people with poor judgment. So that, again, that's a direct attack. If I've bought into an ideology, then to admit 
that there's something wrong with the ideology is to admit I have poor judgment. And that's not simple. That's not easy for people to do because there's an, there's already, an, there's a stigma within our society that there, there would be a lack of trust if you have poor judgment. And so being, being able to relate that uh, of my own mistakes is also creating permission for others to admit their mistakes because then there's acceptance and compassion for their lack of judgment or their failures of judgment. Because that's probably one of the biggest obstacles when people have bought in to the ideology is that if I admit it, because it's easy to justify it, especially right now where there's this mass indoctrination, this worldwide indoctrination where they're giving you all the tools you need to justify these ideologies. It's much easier to just justify and stay hidden in the herd. Whereas to admit that I have poor judgment is to invite criticism and to invite a lack of trust upon me. And so that there's only a willingness to admit poor judgment when you feel that there is acceptance, compassion, forgiveness, and grace on the other side of the conversation. And with that, if there's nothing else, any other contributions, questions, all are welcome. All righty, y'all. Good game. High five. Thanks, everybody.